Hello, Basement Programmers, and welcome. This is the Basement Programmer Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Moore. The opinions expressed in the Basement Programmer Podcast are those of myself and any guests that I may have, and are not necessarily those of our employers or organizations we may be associated with. Feedback in the Basement Programmer Podcast, including suggestions on things you'd like to hear about, can be emailed to me at tom at basementprogrammer.com. And I'm always on the lookout for people who would like to come on the podcast and talk about anything technology-related. So drop me a line. And now for this episode. This month, I'm joined by my guest and one of my favorite Amazonians, Adam Wagner, a serverless specialist for Amazon Web Services. We're going to talk about some of the common mistakes people make with serverless technologies. Adam, welcome to the Basement Programmer Podcast. Thanks, Tom. Glad to, uh, glad to be here. So, Adam, let's start off with an easy question. What is serverless? Yeah, it's uh, these days it feels like it's a little bit of a, of a changing definition, but but basically, it, if you think about kind of what uh, you take in kind of responsibility for managing your infrastructure in the cloud, and think about how what AWS manages for you and dial that knob so that AWS manages basically as much as they can, that's serverless. So if you think about a service like Lambda, which is a serverless compute, we're handling the scalability, right? So you call Lambda once, it runs once. Call Lambda a thousand times, it runs a thousand times. Um, we handle the availability, so you don't need to think about um, you're spreading your Lambda functions across multiple availability zones. We take care of that for you. Um, you don't, uh, the kind of boundary of what part of security that's managed by you is kind of higher up the stack. So if you think about how things uh, like operating system patches, things like that, again, that's AWS response is responsibility, not yours. And then lastly, uh, it, it's really pay per value. So um, I think of it as services where you know, we're really directly tying the cost to when you're actually using it. So for something like Lambda or API Gateway, there's no idle costs associated with it. If you're not serving requests, you know, you're not paying for it. So that's sort of like my definition of serverless. There are definitely some uh, AWS services that have been launched more recently that stretch that a little bit. So, um, you know, there's some of the newer kind of serverless database services and things like that do have sort of like a minimum idle cost. And then, you know, that cost kind of scales with usage. Um, so not everything that's labeled serverless is is kind of like tightly fit in there, but, but that's the general idea. And there are still servers holding up to serverless stuff correct <laughs> there's there's definitely still servers but the idea is that you know you don't have to think about them so your job is to be a serverless specialist what does that really mean yeah so um it's uh i'll let you know a secret it's the best job at aws um it, i i really kind of believe that uh if if you're kind of into serverless and you're a serverless nerd it's uh it's just the best. It's great. Um, but but basically what it means is that I spend my day trying to think about how to help as many customers as possible with our serverless services. And 
And for me, that that definition of like what those services are, uh, we're talking API gateway, Lambda, step functions, event bridge, SNS, SQS um, are, are kind of the main ones there. And, and so, um, and so that can take a bunch of different forms. Sometimes I'm talking directly with customers, which I love to do. Um, but you know, there's there's kind of only one of me for the whole East Coast, and so um, I don't I don't scale very well if all I do <laughs> is talk one on one to customers. I just can't can't get to them all. Um, so then I also do things like. Uh, things that we refer to as like thought leadership activities. So that's things like speaking at reInvent, doing webinars, helping to make our docs better, helping to write blog posts, write example code, things that people can consume and, you know, without having to talk directly to me that kind of really help scale. Um, so that's another facet of it. Uh, another facet is um, working directly with our service teams to help make our products better. So I, I'm out there talking with a lot of customers, uh, a lot of kind of leading edge customers that are, are really kind of pushing our products. And so I'm taking that feedback back to our uh, product teams, suggesting features, talking through, you know, use cases and, and how we can make things better. Um, and also helping kind of with the launch of new features too, uh, which is, is really, really fun. Um, and then uh, lastly, there's a whole lot of solution architects and other um, customer facing people within AWS. And so I'm also always trying to uh, like just help raise the, the general knowledge level around serverless. So I'm doing a lot of kind of internal presentations and internal trainings to help uh, like skill up our customer facing uh, folks on all those serverless services. I love your answer. I love serverless, but I got to disagree with you on one part. Being a .NET developer advocate is the best job at AWS. <laughs> it does sound pretty good as well, admittedly. I mean, for me, as like a mostly Python nerd, it would be a very difficult job, um, but it, it does also sound fun. So um, how is the serverless programming different to traditional programming? Yeah, so uh, you know, I think the 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 core business logic that you write is generally the same, right? There's no, you don't have to use a, a special uh, programming language or uh, you know a specific framework. Um, you know, you're you're well aware, like .NET fully supported, right? So you bring your .NET code, run it in Lambda. Um, you know, support for really all the popular languages, and then then you can bring your own. Um, but there's definitely some things that are different when you think about uh, kind of designing your your application. Um, you know, one of them is that uh, most of the serverless components are stateless. So things like a Lambda function has no state, and so you know if you need to persist state you need to put that in you know some sort of an external store um, the other interesting thing that uh, comes up a lot is things like api gateway and lambda scale really really easily but sometimes the system that you're talking to from lambda can't scale to the same degree 
And so it's easy to create these kind of new front ends with API Gateway and Lambda that if you have a big scaling event will overwhelm some legacy backend that just can't scale uh, to that to that same degree. So um, that's another another thing that you want to think about. I would say the other thing is very often as you learn more and more about the different serverless services, basically you can just have less code. Um, even even a, an application that someone might have written using uh, like Lambda, you know, four four years ago, three years ago, even two years ago, there's now a lot of kind of native integrations with other AWS uh, services where you might be able to remove a whole bunch of that Lambda code. Uh, like Step Functions comes to mind here. Uh, you know, Step Functions. Uh, really cool serverless uh, workflow orchestration. And in the past, if you wanted to talk to an AWS service, there were a few services that had built-in integrations with Step Functions. Other services, you'd call a Lambda from Step Functions and that Lambda would call out to, you know, maybe you wanna do some machine learning on, on an image, like label all the things that are in there, call Amazon recognition. In the past, you, you needed a Lambda function to do that. Now, Step Functions, you can call any of the AWS DKs directly from Step Functions. And so if you're not doing any like real business logic, you're not doing any heavy transformation, you don't need that Lambda function anymore. You can do it directly from Step Functions. And so there's like that, that concept of retiring some of your code and just moving it to configuration. And uh, so I think that's uh, you know, kind of some of what, what makes it different. I think I've written some of those Lambda functions that do nothing other than just say, put this here. So um, so basically, I shouldn't just take my ASP.NET web server and throw it into a Lambda. So this is a funny, this is like an interesting concept, sort of like the, the, the idea of sort of like lifting and shifting uh, like a, a, an app kind of into Lambda. I think in the past, people would just say no. Right, like no, definitely, definitely don't do that. Right, that's not not the way Lambda should be. Lambda should be like single-purpose microservices, one per Lambda, and you know, do it that way. And that way works great. Like build, you know, granular microservices with Lambda. It works really well. If you're going to rapidly iterate on, you know, your application, you anticipate like different services being owned by different teams eventually probably makes sense. But maybe maybe that, you know, .NET web server, that, that .NET web app that you have, maybe it does just a few things. Maybe it's not going to change very much. And it doesn't, you know, you just want to kind of lift it and shift it. There, there is a way. There's a, a great project um, by uh, Harold, one of my uh, colleagues, another serverless specialist essay out of China, that, that basically allows you to do just that. So you can take basically any framework that expects a, a web request, put it inside this Lambda web adapter and then run it as a Lambda function and it'll just work. And like I said, if you're looking to modernize that web application, break it up into more microservices, that might not be the way to go long-term, but it might be how you start. Um, and so I've I've actually become much more okay with like almost these like monolith lambda functions. I think they have their place, um, and you know sometimes sometimes that that's all you need. And so um, 
yeah, you might not have been the answer you expected, but I would say, sure, try it, lift it and shift it. Why not? That's great. Uh, so what kind of things are best suited to serverless? Yeah, yeah, I get this question a lot in terms of, you know, like what's the what's the sweet spot where where does this fit, you know, really well? Um, and and I'm obviously biased, right? Like I I look at any business problem and I'm like, yeah, you solve that with serverless. Let me, <laughs> let me grab my bag full of step functions and grab my other bag full of lambda functions and we'll we'll just get this done. Um, but but there's you know there's really like lots and lots of, of different things that that work well in serverless. Um, you know I think I think some of the areas that that work really well are things that have sort of unpredictable load, right? Like things that sit idle for five minutes, ten minutes, and then you need to spin up a whole bunch of requests, and then it goes back to being idle. Um, those sort of things work really, really well uh, in serverless. And then, uh, you know, I mentioned step functions a few times, but like anything where you're trying to orchestrate other things that are happening in AWS and you don't already have a tool to kind of handle the orchestration, reach for step functions. So there's like, there's other AWS tools that are kind of more specific, right? So if you're if you're doing kind of ETL processing, very often you you reach for Glue and like Glue is very specific to kind of ETL processing works really well, but you might have something where you're like, well, I need to uh, make a few API calls, I need to do these few other things, and then I need to kick off that Glue job. It's like, oh well, yeah, like wrap that step function, it'll work great. Uh, step functions are also really great. Anytime you have, uh, you know, I talk with folks a lot who are kind of like automating a business process and it's like really easy for them to get to like 90% automation, but there's this 10% where they need a human element. It might be like you're running machine learning on something to see whether or not, you know, your, your machine learning algorithm says this should be approved and it has a confidence interval. And, and if the confidence isn't high enough, you want to have a human reviewer. That type of workflow, super easy to build up in step functions. And like, again, the, the serverless pay for value, like step functions, when you like put a call out, when I send an approval over to Tom to say, Tom, you know, decide whether to approve this loan or not, while it's waiting for you to send back that approval, you're not paying for anything. There's no idle cost in step functions while we're waiting for that response back. Um, and you don't have to worry about the scaling, right? If there's like five of those loan applications going on, there's five of those step functions running. If there's 500, there's 500, right? Like it just scales. Um, and so uh, those are those are just a few of the, the places where it, it works really well. Um, I, one one other one that I'll plug because it, it's one of my favorites um, is uh, serverless stream processing. So, um, you know, Kinesis and AWS is like a, a streaming data product. Um, you also have Kafka, right? Open source tool. You can run it in AWS in a managed version with MSK, managed streaming for Kafka, and also run it with our partners in Confluent. And whether you're managing it yourself, running it on EC2, or you're running it in MSK, or you're running it in Confluent, either way, you can hook up a Lambda function 
to be triggered when there's new messages in that topic. And I, I think this is great because when you see Kafka in an enterprise today, very often it's in the past, like there would be an analytics group and you would have people who really knew streaming analytics. They're writing flink jobs. They're doing pretty, pretty fancy specific streaming things. Nowadays, often all the kind of enterprise events are living on Kafka. And so you have just, you know, kind of normal like me programmers that need to consume these events. They're not experts in streaming data. They don't want to go learn a new framework like Flink or Spark streaming or things like that. They just want to execute their business logic when a certain event comes over the wire and Lambda makes it super easy to do that. So I think, um, yeah, that's, that's another use case that uh, I'm really excited about. I talk with a lot of customers about that one. It's a lot of fun. Fun fact, Adam actually introduced me to Kinesis about six and a half years ago, giving me my first crash course in the service <laughs> back in Cambridge. Tom and I go back a, a little ways. It was, uh, yeah, good, good times. So Adam, let's talk about the top kind of mistakes that people make when it comes to serverless. What are some of those? Yeah, yeah. I, um, you know, I think... Um, I don't want to make it like uh, serverless is hard to use because I, I don't think it is. Um, but there, there is a little bit of a, a learning curve and, you know, hopefully kind of talking about some uh, you know, mistakes that we see can, can kind of help people uh, avoid them. I would say the first one is not sizing Lambda functions correctly. Uh, so when you create a Lambda function, uh, one of the one of the knobs available for you to turn is how much memory is assigned to that function. By default, it only has 128 megabytes assigned to it, and you can crank that knob all the way up to 10 gigabytes. When you increase the memory, you also increase the CPU performance and the networking performance. So often, folks will run their code set up this Lambda function, they run it at that default value of 128. You get a, a little printout in the log line that says what the max amount of memory is that the, the function used. And they'll see like, oh, it only used you know 80 megabytes. I'm, per I'm good. I don't need to adjust that uh, Lambda function at all. But very often, the, the best kind of price performance trade-off is at a higher uh, amount of memory. And, and I say price performance because remember, remember Lambda is, is pay per value. So you're paying basically by the gigabyte millisecond. And so if I have 128 megabyte Lambda function and it takes one second to run and I quadruple the amount of memory and it runs in 100 milliseconds, not only did it is it going to run faster or my user is going to be happier, but it's actually cheaper too. Uh, and so there's a great utility out there called AWS Lambda Power Tuning that basically you feed it your Lambda function and a test payload, and it will run your Lambda function for you at a whole bunch of different uh, memory configurations and spit out a very nice graph that shows that price performance that I'm talking about. Um, so, so that's one that that uh, I think a lot of people could could benefit from, um, you know, basically tuning the the amount of memory that you have uh, assigned to your lambda function. 
So Lambda, great, but it doesn't just magically fix that problem of trying to scale and everything else so all by itself, right? No, not yet. Hopefully someday. We'll see. Uh, there's also there's also like uh, AWS Compute Optimizer also mm -hmm. kind of does this for you. Compute Optimizer is is like look back, right? So basically the Lambda function needs to run for a while and then Compute Optimizer will make suggestions for you. So AWS Lambda Power Tools is nice because you can kind of size it proactively. Um, but the Compute Optimizer is a, another way to to do it. So getting a little closer to, uh, you know, setting these things up automatically. Great. Okay. So uh, problem number one, or, or potentially issue number one, not sizing Lambda functions correctly. What's another, uh, what's another issue that uh, customers need to look at? Sure. Uh, another gotcha that I see is um, the setting the Lambda timeout to a value that doesn't match uh, the integration, the, the trigger, the way that you're running that Lambda function. Um, so another, you know, Lambda doesn't have that many knobs for you to kind of change, but another one of them is the timeout for the Lambda function. So Lambda functions can run up to a maximum of 15 minutes for, you know, a single Lambda execution, but you can dial that down to whatever you want. Right. So you can dial it down by default. I think it's three seconds. Um, and so you can dial that down to to what you want it to be. I, but there's some Lambda integrations that have their own timeouts. Uh, and today we don't do a great job of like letting you know when you have a mismatch. So the, the classic example here is API Gateway calling a Lambda function as the back end for an API call. API Gateway has a 30-second timeout on back-end responses. And so if you have your API Gateway calling a Lambda function, and that Lambda function has a minute-long timeout, your API Gateway is going to return an error to the user that's calling that API Gateway. Your Lambda function is just going to keep running, right? Like, it just keeps running. And you look in your Lambda logs, and Lambda's like, I'm doing great. I ran awesome, you know, um, and so that like that's a that's one to to look out for. Um, similarly, with AWS Step Functions, Step Functions has two variants: standard workflows, which are good for like long running workflows, and express workflows, which are good for like high volume but short lived workflows. Those express workflows have a has a have a max runtime of five minutes. So again, if you're calling a Lambda function from within that express workflow, you want to make sure that the timeout on the Lambda function is short enough that it's going to fit within that five-minute window uh, within your express workflow. That's a uh, it's great advice. I and I've I've seen the uh, yeah the the timeout issue uh, a couple times, and customers think that because Lambda can run for 15 minutes, it should run for 15 minutes. Yeah, it's a that's another good point, right? So sometimes, sometimes like in development, folks will just kind of crank up that timeout, uh, like all the way to 15 minutes. And, you know, like, maybe what you're doing actually does need, you know, potentially need all of that time. But like, maybe it doesn't, right. And so 
if if there's like a, a possibility of your lambda function sort of getting in some sort of loop or running away, it can be a good safeguard to have that timeout much closer to you know what you actually think the uh, the the runtime of the function should be. Another thing that I've seen customers do with that with that 15 minutes is they'll think, well, I'm going to implement like retry logic and error handling inside of my Lambda function. And um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that, that really kind of depends on the use case, right? I think sometimes you do want to like fail fast rather than doing that that sort of timeout uh, that sort of like retry and and kind of doing more of those retries within lambda sometimes some retries in lambda make a lot of sense um you know i just wouldn't go kind of too overboard with it um and like especially if you're starting to think about kind of like longer wait times and timeouts you don't want to be you don't want to be sleeping for two or three seconds in a Lambda function before calling something again. You, you're just you're just kind of wasting money at that point, right? Like we don't we don't want sleeps in our, our Lambda functions. Um, so I often think about moving the kind of retry logic a little higher, right? So if a step function is calling that Lambda function, put the retry logic in that state within the step function, not in the Lambda function itself. Great advice. Uh, let's see. Uh, do you have another uh, another uh, pitfall uh, for us? Yeah, I would I would say the the maybe my final one um, would be like lambda functions calling other lambda functions. Mm -hmm. So you know sometimes I see customers um, you know start to tackle a problem and they realize they have a, a few different things that all need to happen uh, maybe kind of in parallel and they create like one Lambda function that calls three other Lambda functions hmm. and is like the coordination between those. And the, the problem there is that that first Lambda function that's being that coordinator, it means you sort of double pay while those other Lambdas are running, right? So it's calling Lambda function A, your coordinator calls Lambda function B and calls Lambda function C and it's waiting for that response to come back. And so you're paying not just for Lambda function B and Lambda function C, but Lambda function A is sitting there running that whole time too, you know, waiting for those to finish. That type of use case is a perfect fit for step functions. And so kind of whenever I see that type of pattern uh, where people have Lambda functions calling other Lambda functions, kind of chaining them together, um, I often encourage people to, to take a look at step functions. Great advice. Let's see. Um, so let's say you've got a customer who's gone down this road. They've made a whole bunch of these different, uh, stumbled into a bunch of these different pitfalls. How do you help them to kind of unwind the string and and uh, get to a more optimal situation? Yeah, yeah. I I try not to be too um, too like ideological about it, right? So you know, like Lambda functions calling other Lambda functions, there is this kind of better way to do it most of the time. Mm -hmm. But if I'm talking to a customer about that and cost isn't an issue and the maintenance of the current solution isn't a problem, 
then like I, I I'm not going to harp on it to to go and change it if it's if it's working well for them. Um, so I really want to start with like where their kind of pain points are and you know help from there. So you have a customer has that type of architecture and the the issue is that their you know their costs are are kind of growing too high. Then I absolutely want to like look at that and see that as as a way to sort of fix it, right? And so you know, in that in that case, right? If that customer if cost was their main concern, uh, I would look at kind of combining a couple of those things that I talked about, right? So I would both look at like, okay, let's replace that orchestration with a step function. And so now you're not kind of double paying for the Lambda and then let's optimize your Lambda functions using AWS Lambda power tuning to make sure they're sized at the optimal size to get the best price performance that you can. Um, another, another tool in the toolbox in the price performance space is looking at running the Lambda function on uh, Graviton processors instead of x86. Uh, so Graviton are uh, the AWS ARM-based processors, and you have an option with Lambda to kind of toggle between x86 and ARM. Uh, if you're, you know, using an interpreted language like Python, very often you don't have to change anything. Easy to to kind of do it. Um, you know, if you're using a compiled language, a little more work to do, but there's actually a, a really great uh, utility that just launched that's called the I think it's called the Graviton Porting Advisor. It's like a CLI tool that helps look at your code and make suggestions uh, for porting from x86 to Graviton. Um, but yeah, moving to the Graviton-based processors for most workloads gets you uh, a price performance boost. So that's a, another thing you could look at there. So, um, Adam, you've been interested in service serverless well as long as I've known you. Thinking back over your time at AWS, what's the most fun you've had working on a serverless project? Oh, oh man. Um, oh, there's so many good ones to choose from. <laughs> I I like I like high scale, mm -hmm. uh, and so. I've gotten to talk with uh, some uh, some car companies, some automobile manufacturers about like IoT use cases where mm -hmm. you're getting data from hundreds of thousands of cars, maybe not that many, but yeah, tens of thousands of cars, um, lots and lots of data coming in into Kinesis data streams and then processing that with Lambda. Um, and just talking through kind of the performance of that system, the scale of that system uh, was was super fun. Um, so that's that's one that was really cool. Um, let's see what other ones, what other good ones have I seen? Um, yeah, that one's that was one of my favorites. But yeah, lots lots of great use cases. Um, I had a, a one that I really enjoyed. Um, that there's there's actually kind of a public case study about is Liberty Mutual um, replaced their uh, basically like document management system with a homegrown AWS document management system and basically like they moved from a commercial product to this home built thing on AWS 
their costs dropped just dramatically, you know, something like $30,000 a year to $2,000 a year or something like that. Um, and, uh, performance was great. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was a cool one just because that team, that team built it in, in a relatively short amount of time too. Um, and, uh, yeah, just really impressive kind of impact for for their business making things easier for people to manage these documents getting a system that is really customized to them um all at a cheaper price so that was cool that's a great result yeah so just for fun if you weren't an aws solutions architect what would you be oh man uh it's a good question i mean you know I think uh, if, if I was going to walk away from computers forever, I think I'd probably, um, I'm, I'm still sort of like a builder at heart. So maybe I'd make furniture. Uh, I like like building stuff out of wood. I'm not very good at it. So it'd be hard for me to make a living <laughs> at it right now, but I think that'd be really fun. So not the professional bike racer? Uh, again, I mean, that sounds like it would be super fun. I'm just, I'm just not good enough. <laughs> Someone wants to take me uh, to race bikes and finish last all the time. I'm I'm all for it. I'll do it. <laughs> Alrighty, Adam. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the Basement Programmer Podcast. Hopefully, I can have you back again sometime. Maybe talking Absolutely. about some new features or launches. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Basement Programmer Podcast. I really appreciate you tuning in. And if you have any feedback or comments, of course, send me an email. Also, please consider subscribing. It lets me know that you're enjoying this production. I'm looking forward to you joining me for the next episode of the Basement Programmer Podcast. In the meantime, take care, stay safe, and keep learning.